You are listening to Beautiful Minds, the podcast. Beautiful Minds captures honest and optimistic conversations with smart, passionate, and genuine people who seek to change the world for the better. And now, we're starting small with a series of portraits of individuals who, in 2011, got together to study human rights in Europe. They came from different places, different backgrounds, and had very different stories. All they had in common was their appetite for social justice and a motivation to make a difference. Almost a decade later, let's see where they are, what they've done, and what they've learned. At Beautiful Minds, we start small and we dream big. Thank you for tuning in and let's get started. We are in New York at the moment, both of us, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell me how are you? Where are you? I've already said, so yeah. Yeah, sorry I stole the thunder. <laughs> But how's your week going? And it's, uh, it's a Wednesday today. Yes, it's going very well, thank you. And thank you for hosting me. <laughs> I'm visiting you for the week. It's been really, really good, filled with museums and food. Absolutely. Uh, we've uh, discovered there was 111 museums in New York, so we've you know set on a mission to do them all. But after two, we had to uh, we had to stop. Um, Amy, you and I have known each other for what feels like a long time, mm-hmm. and uh, we're going close to a decade, which is both really cool and kind of really weird because it makes me feel kind of older than I wish. <laughs> But um, we met literally, actually, on the first minute when I walked into the program. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that. You're the I first do. person I, I met when I joined. Uh, Um, the student accommodation where we were hosted in uh, Sweden, that was probably like, I don't know, the beginning of August 2011. I don't yeah. know exactly the day. I walked into the student accommodation and uh, I couldn't find my room because <laughs> the numbers were like in a tiny corner. And I was really confused and I knocked on the first door that I could find and it was yours. And um, and you were very nice. You explained to me where to find the number, <laughs> showed me my room. And, uh, and we've been, you know, friends and very close friends since then. So... It was August 2011. Do you want to tell me a little bit about where were you in your life, you know, at, at that point before starting this uh, this two years masters? You know, what what had you been doing right before, and what had been up until then your experience of uh, of Europe? I think you had spent yeah. uh, some time in Europe before, so yeah, it was. Uh, that's such a. It feels like a long time ago, but then also not that long ago. Mm-hmm. So um, I had applied for that master's program while I was living in Malawi. I was working with uh, an organization that was promoting um, rights-based media um, through journalism. And I had was living there at the time. I had applied from um, East Africa. And I had returned to Canada um, shortly after that and started working at a small nonprofit. So when I found out that I got my master's, I had just recently started a job. Um, so I had, yeah, I had spent a little bit of time in Europe a few years prior to that when I was in my undergraduate degree. Um, I was based for a year in Sheffield, University of Sheffield in England. Um, and during that time, that I did do a little bit of backpacking in Europe, so I got to see a little bit of it. Um, but yeah, so I had a pretty quick transition. I had a, a few months in Canada working, and then I quickly moved over to Sweden to start yeah, our, our like master's. Like, full slur, yeah. it's going again. <laughs> Sorry about that, bye. <laughs> yeah. That's great. I mean, don't you love it when it just happens like that? Mm-hmm. And so I think you had a similar transition, actually, on the other side of the program. So I remember we graduated in uh, something like June 2013. I think mm-hmm. it was the 13th, actually, of June. We had a graduation ceremony in London mm-hmm. where we all met up because the last semester we were all scattered around uh, different places. And so we all met up in, uh, in London had this ceremony and then a few of us uh, spent some time in Spain mm-hmm. uh, in, in family apartments and um, 
um, you know, just kind of enjoy the sun and, and each other's company for, for one last time. And then we all, you know, got back on the plane. And where did you go? You know, what was your immediate kind of post-graduation mindset? And yeah. what were you up to? And what was your um, experience of kind of transitioning back onto the labor market, you know, onto, yeah. onto working? Well, I think I, I had an idea, a very romantic idea in my head that I really wanted to travel uh, throughout the Middle East. I had written my dissertation on um, uh, mainly centralized in, in the Middle East, and I wanted to actually go and, and see it. So I'd spent all this time working on this dissertation, and I still had not yet visited the Middle East. So um, I bought a guidebook. I was ready to go. Um, and then a week before we left for Spain for our little last hurrah, um, I was contacted by the CEO of the organization I had worked with briefly in Canada before my master's, and they offered me a, a full-time job and back in Canada. Back in Canada. And I, I didn't have any intention, actually, of coming back to Canada. I really loved living in London, and I had every intention of, after my travel in the Middle East, coming back to London and looking for work there. Um, but I think at that time, you know, a fresh graduate and a, a job on the table, it was an opportunity that I couldn't turn down. So I did take the job and I don't regret that. It was a fantastic role. I came back to Canada. I thought it would be maybe a year or two and then I would uh, head back to London and I, I just never did. I've been in Canada ever since and that was 2013. Yeah, yeah. so we're like six years down the line and you're, yeah. you're still there. But actually things could change anytime soon, right? Yeah. Because you recently got some kind of exciting news and I, and I actually feel super, not jealous, but you know, really happy for you because I would love to have civil passports. And so you recently got a British passport, which mm -hmm. makes you an official uh, European citizen, which might not be for long I'm, I'm you know sorry yeah. to remind everyone of that but um but yes you know you just got a, a British passport does it change anything for for you I mean I'm sure you've had some this kind of on and off you know relationship with the European Union you were on a scholarship from the European Commission when we were uh, studying and mm -hmm. so you've kind of benefited from that you know social welfare utopia that the EU can be sometimes and uh, what is now your relationship to kind of the European dream, if there is such thing, you know, and or at least to what being European or having a European experience can can mean, you know, has it uh, has it evolved? Yeah, I feel really conflicted actually about it. I think that um, growing up, I always had a very strong connection to my Scottish heritage. Um, my mother is Scottish, and that's a very strong presence in my life growing up. But um, I think. I now feel very conflicted. I did get my passport, but at a time where it was right after the Brexit vote. So I have a little bit of actually mm -hmm. shame around actually being able to have a British passport when this Brexit thing is kind of in the midst of happening and we don't really know what that future is going to look like. But I'm sure that that's um, unsettling for, I think, a lot of Europeans living in the UK. So I think that that's a, that's a point of... Um, Uh, I'm very conflicted about it, actually. Yeah. Uh, I think it's hard. But uh, let's not go too far into the basic <laughs> conversation. I don't want to talk about this a bit too early. I haven't even finished my first coffee yet. You know, this is not morning conversation. So let's go a little bit deeper into your actual work, you know, mm -hmm. into what you've been doing for the past few years, or at least since you since you graduated and, and came back, you know, to, to the, the NGO and the kind of charity sector, which mm -hmm. now you've been working in for close to a decade, I, I assume, you know, mm -hmm. before the master's and a little bit after. You, you're based in Toronto, mm -hmm. in Canada, and then you visit all of those projects that you fund and, and manage grant with and for. So do you want to explain to us a little bit how, how this works? You know, I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who don't have a clear idea of how 
the kind of international foreign aid sector in general works, you know, mm-hmm. where is the money coming from, you know, what is your involvement as a Canadian in the project when you visit Bangladesh or, or Malawi, you know, what is the kind of division of labor and mm-hmm. the, the decision-making process? How is it scattered across, you know, all actors involved in this, um, in this project? So my work is funded by the Canadian government. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, the Canadian government does kind of set the agenda um, for sort of sectors of focus and areas of focus, as well as countries of focus. Um, obviously, our organization has their own um, kind of agenda as well, but that it, it often very closely aligns with the Canadian government. Um, my projects are mainly in the health sector, so maternal newborn child health was really the original agenda under the conservative government in Canada. Um, and after um, Trudeau became prime minister, the agenda started to kind of open up to include more sexual and reproductive health and rights. So uh, my projects both are focused on kind of those two, um, you know, overlapping sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, so we work in, um, like you said, in, in Malawi, in East Africa, and also in um, Asia, in, in Bangladesh is my other area of focus. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of Division of labor. Um, at the Canadian National Office, we are, you know, accountable to the Canadian government for how we use the funds mm-hmm. um, and for fulfilling, you know, our um, targets that we set out at the at the outset of a project. So we have our outcomes that we want to achieve, and then we have all the targets that we set to um, achieve those outputs and the and our progress towards our ultimate outcomes. Um, so I think that. You know, we're accountable to the government for, for those. Um, in, in the countries, I think that those teams are um, very focused on implementation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, dealing with the day-to-day stresses and challenges of implementing in so many different contexts. So when it comes to decision-making, those teams have a lot of decision-making power. I think that um, we really rely on them to inform us how the project should sh- take shape and what changes we need to make um, every year when we do like our annual work planning um, or even, you know, throughout um, there can be a broad range of challenges, everything from weather to, um, you know, elections and, um, you know, areas where we need to change focus because we're seeing not the impact that we want to see, unintended consequences of our work. um, And we need to, you know, take stock of those and, and reassess and, uh, come at it another way again, um, or change our approach. Um, so I think from in terms of division of work at the Canadian office, um, we have a large matrix of experts in various fields that would relate to the project. So we have gender equality and inclusion. We have health experts. We have um, sexual reproductive health experts. We have um, environment and climate. Mm-hmm. We have um, several different areas of expertise. As the program manager, it's really your responsibility to um, operate within that matrix and to make sure that all the people who need to be engaged are, are engaged. Yeah. And you're pulling in all the right expertise and it's kind of... Exactly, exactly. Um, and so it's kind of a bit of like a juggling act often. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's always a challenge, always you know, operating within people's availability and... Um, 
yeah, making sure all the right people are at the table for the conversation is really, really a crucial part of my job. Yeah. yeah, I remember super clearly, you know, I think when we graduated from a master's, I felt this this limitations, you know, in my own profile because I didn't have a substantial expertise. And then I realized that in a lot of um, very kind of transnational, you know, umbrella organizations that have a lot of satellite units everywhere with projects in the field, you know, headquarters, and then a lot of involvement at the global level as well, you know, in terms of advocacy at the yeah. UN and all of this, you actually had a lot of people working on project management, you know, and program management in general, mm-hmm. you know, and just coordinating all of these different actors and that it was an actual real skill, you For know, sure. to be doing this. And the way that we kind of... Um, see it is that program management is its own field of expertise. So I think that um, it is funny because I think it's one of those positions that you need to be very fluid. Mm. And if things run very smoothly, that's how you want it to go. But when things run very smoothly, I think people sometimes overlook it as a a position of expertise until the program manager is removed. Um, I know that there has been, um, in some organizations I've worked for, some area expertise hmm. where um, they have stepped up to the plate to become the program manager of, a, of that those projects. I can tell you right now those organizations don't do that again mm-hmm. <laughs> because there's a recognition that program management is its own area yeah. of expertise and you do need to have that. Um, it's both detail-oriented and kind of big picture, looking mm-hmm. at like um, uh, outcome level and and having that perspective is very different. You know, writing reports for donors mm-hmm. and stakeholders is a very different, um, you know, kind of skill set than looking for areas of improvement like gender and, and how we're integrating Yeah, and that. it's about connecting the dots, right? And, mm-hmm. and being able to liaise all of these actors and, you know, you're looking kind of upwards and downwards and, you know, sideways and, yeah. and you're just kind of, you know, making the salad out of, out of everyone. Um, you know, I think it's, it's interesting that you mentioned all of this, you know, the financial aspect, you know, the funding aspect and the, the reporting aspect as well, because I am always very... You know, I think as a field, we are very self-critical, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the human rights or the kind of development sector is extremely self-reflective and self-critical, which I value and I appreciate, you know, for several reasons. I think it's actually um, amazing that, you know, in, in a lot of countries, you are safe enough as a human rights or NGO worker to actually voice out your concerns, you know, and to be able to say we're not doing well enough on X, Y, Z. You know, I think there's a lot of countries where you're not allowed to say anything about anything, you know, in your country. So, or in the context where where you operate and where you live. So it is great. I am also grateful for the transparency with which um, most international NGOs um, operate, you know, being really transparent about where the money comes from, you know, what they spend it on, um, about the impact that they have, you know, and the reality of how much change they manage um, to achieve. But that also comes at a price, which is there is a lot of skepticism at best and a lot of criticism, you know, at worst of um, the actual impact that the, that the non-profit sector has, you know, at every level, you know, both in the field, on the ground, but also, you know, in all of this kind of middlemen, like, you know, national headquarters or global headquarters where people are paid well and, and sometimes, you know, too well according to the public opinion and, and all of this. So both of these sides of the equations are real, right? I mean, both these criticisms are, are, are kind of real. And I'm wondering, you know, what, <laughs> I asked, you know, the, the girls in the in the previous episodes, you know, are you disappointed in the non-profit sector? Which I think is a very dramatic way to ask the question. And um, But it's a little bit you know, me asking you to kind of look back at yourself in 2011, you know, when you set on this journey 
of studying human rights, you know, and, and all these kind of big hopes and big dreams we had for what we were going to be doing, you know, changing the world and all of this. And now, you know, almost 10 years after, you know, has it actually lived up to your expectations, you know, both the field and, and the, the margin for change that we have as, um, as individuals, you know, within that field, you know, has it... Has it lived up to, to that expectations of 2011 you? <laughs> that is a big question. <laughs> I would say that, I mean, yes and no. Mm-hmm. I think that you're right that we are very self-critical. I think that um, there are things that we could do better. Um, I worry on the times when I, you know, think at the macro level. I do, I'm concerned that we're very, very critical of the development that was done 10, 20 years ago. There, we look at all those mistakes and say, we're never going to do that again. I worry about what the next 10 years are going to say about the work that we do. Mm. Um, you know, next 10, 20, 50 years from now, what will they look back on and say we're not doing right? I think that we have a spirit of learning, but I also think that our workloads don't really allow for a lot of reflectiveness in learning. I think that every project really values, you know, knowledge management of our lessons learned and our, you know, best practices. I think documentation of that is always happening. You know, I think that's really, really important. I just don't think that that translates and doesn't, there's not enough time to share that with other NGOs. You know, I know I don't attend conferences. <laughs> like right now, I have no time to attend conferences. Um, we hope that, you know, the higher level leadership who are attending conferences are trickling down that information into our, our projects and such. But I think that there isn't enough time and space. The workloads are really, really high to have a real opportunity for reflection um, across sectors, across mm-hmm. um, NGOs. I think that if we created more space for that within our own actual like day to day, I think that that's where kind of the macro level isn't really responding to like the micro level, like day to day work mm-hmm. of how much time you actually have to reflect on our, our lessons learned. So I, I, I worry about that a bit on a personal level. I'm not disappointed with the work that we do. I think that generally speaking, you know, I'm, I'm pretty proud of the work that we do and I don't think that I would continue to work in the sector if I didn't. Um, it is what drives you every day. But I am, I'm disappointed, I think, in uh, my quality of life. Mm. On a personal level, I think that the, the sector has a long way to go um, to recognizing, you know, um, perhaps the labor rights of <laughs> their own employees. I think that um, I would love to see nonprofit workers unionized. Mm. I think that that would be an excellent step or um, more organizations taking responsibility to recognize the, the workloads of their, their staff and to manage that more appropriately. You know, I think there is this idea that because we're working for a good cause, you know, and because we're working for something that we've chosen because we believe in it, mm-hmm. then it's kind of okay for us to do over time, to accept to be underpaid, you know, to be overworked and underpaid, yeah. um, that it's okay that it steps into our private lives, you know, or personal life or personal time a little bit too much and, and all of this because, you know this is for a good cause, kind yeah. of. So, and I've definitely had, you know, many, many times this conversation where people are like, oh, but you work for a charity, but you actually get paid. Yeah. And, uh, and I mean, it happens less and less now because I think I'm a little bit older and people assume that, yes, of course, I'm getting paid for what it is that I'm doing, you know, but uh, I, you know, I feel like we have to self-justify a lot when, yeah. when we work in this field, you know, and it comes with this very 
kind of strong, you know, burden of because it's value based and because it is beliefs based, mm -hmm. you definitely have very high expectations of your commitment, you know, of your dedication to your work that goes beyond what um, the salary that we receive, you know, should um, should buy, you know, from us, kind of. And I think too that when you invest in the sector. Um, you will avoid some of those mistakes that were made in the past, right? Like I think that having un, um, you know, it, people who are driving the agenda, who don't have the expertise or the background or the education um, in the sector, who haven't studied, the, you know, yeah. uh, human rights and development, I think that when those people are the people in the driver's seat making decisions, that's when bad development happens. And I think that if we want to avoid that in the future, then we need to invest in the people who work in nonprofit. Um, to do great development work. I've been thinking a lot and talking a lot with many, many different people about what does success look like, you know, in our field? Because when we have goals and ambitions that are just so huge, you know, I mean, if, if what an organization like Save the Children is doing is they're trying to educate every children in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, they're trying to ensure that no one dies before the age of five because of malnutrition or poor access to to healthcare and all of this. I mean, when the goals are so huge mm -hmm. and obviously we haven't achieved them yet, you know, how do you measure and how do you get satisfaction from your progress, you know? Yeah. And I think it gets very overwhelming as an NGO worker when what you're doing is not only huge, you know, in terms of, of goals, but also very um, hard to quantify. You know, we're not making money, we're not making profit, we're not making numbers, we're not selling units of anything, you know, so everything we do is qualitative. I mean, not everything, but a lot of what we do is qualitative. And of course, there are a lot of efforts to measure uh, impact, you know, by saying how many kids are we sending to schools, mm -hmm. you know, how many uh, teachers are we, um, are, are we training, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah. So there are numbers that you can put onto your impact and into your progress, but um, the end goal remains really 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 far in every single field do you get overwhelmed you know by this kind of you know back and forth between this gigantic long-term goals you know and, and this very sometimes trivial you know mini kind of um tasks you know and measurements impact you, yeah. you know that, that that you have on a daily basis and you feel like okay we're never going to get there it's going to take too long you know and yeah and um so yeah you know how, how how do you define success for yourself you know and for your team and for your projects so i don't know if, if you have any um yeah any take on that i think that the first of all i think the sdgs are so essential in kind of harnessing the power of the nonprofit sector the billions of dollars that are being poured into this it gives us a shared vision which i think is really 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 important yeah. Um, so I will say that. I think that from my day-to-day, -day, I only really um, think about the SDGs during the development stage of any project, right? Mm -hmm. In the planning stage and um, when we're kind of defining out those um, like outcome level, yeah. output level, and like indicators that would inform our success, right? So I think that um, we're very um, targeted in how we value or how we measure impact um, or success mm -hmm. in, in our projects. Um, and they are very much tied back to the, the SDGs. But I think um, what it doesn't do a great job of is recognizing kind of some of the uh, more unintended consequences mm -hmm. or uh, positive or negative of the work that we're doing because we do get kind of pinholed into these narrow ideas of um, what success looks like yeah. um, and what, yeah, like you're saying, like how many kids are doing this or, yeah. or whatever, right? Like are we meeting our targets on training and um you know, health workers and things like that. So I think that we can get very, um, um, you know, narrow focus. Um, 
in on how we look at success in different projects. I think for me personally, you know, if I personalize it and like the, the things that I feel the best about, um, probably tied back to my concerns about the sector is really when I catch something, um, or a team recognizes something that we're doing that's having a negative unintended consequence Mm. and we're able to course correct. I think that I actually see that as a huge success because, um, it happens a lot, you know. I think that especially when you are making um, real change, um, or you're really pushing for some real change. For example, like gender equality. I think that's an area where we'll often see other problems, things that are very problematic, popping up as a result of the things that we're doing in our projects. And I think when we recognize that and we're able to course correct, that's a huge success to me. I think I, I don't see that as. Um, uh, an accident or a, oh, we shouldn't have done this. I think that when we recognize that some of the work that we're doing is having an unintended consequence that's negative for the women that we work with, I think that's actually a huge success because we can learn and grow and change and course correct in time. Um, and maybe we'll notice another unintended consequence of our course correction, but then we'll continue to, to correct our course. So to me, that's the biggest success is I go home at the end of those days feeling like, okay, we did something good because we recognized something (laughs) wrong and we're making a change. So, and then it's great to feel like you can trust that the systems you have in place actually, you know, bring up this kind of, um, of, yeah, findings, you know I mean? And sometimes you can have unintended, um, consequences that are actually positive, right? I mean, you can definitely see that as well. And you know, build um, your next project or your next project phase, you know, yeah. on top of this, and be like, okay, we didn't realize that this was going to do X, Y, Z for I don't know elderly people in the community, and then you're like, well, this is a great component, you know, yeah. to definitely encourage, you know, in the future. So, and then the consequences are both, you know, they go both ways, and, and I think, and the positive. yeah, and I think that that's an area where. Um, I like to think that I can help a lot from a Canadian national office. So again, that division of work, I am very much tied to what we have told our funders we will do, but I feel like our team in the field can have a bit more flexibility with that. So I look out for that in our reporting. I make sure that we're reporting, um, based on, um, you know, what we've told our funders will do, but I don't want the team to feel tied to that. So we Mm. use the, the tool called like the performance measurement framework, um, the PMF and, um, I'm very tied to that PMF. It's very important to me. I basically have it memorized. I don't want my team in the field to feel that way about the PMF. I think that they should feel like they should be reporting on things that we're not necessarily asking for, right? Because that's where you recognize those positive things. And that's where a lot of, yeah, like you're saying, the new annual work planning process or whatever, when we meet again to say, what are we going to do in this next year? Well, then the team will say, actually, this was really successful. And we noticed that this happened. We should support that. Or this was not good and this is why and we shouldn't do that so I think that we rely on our team a lot and I think if the teams in the field are too tightly bound to this very narrow idea of success using our, our indicators then that, then we lose a lot of that opportunity so there is definitely you know a balance to be found between letting your team lose you know and giving them freedom to to innovate and to yeah. implement different things but also kind of making sure you keep the direction you know of the work um, yeah that you've set yourself to to do so I don't know how you feel about um, your life you know and your kind of work-life balance or kind of the boundaries between your personal life and your work life I mean 
I wonder how what works for you, you know, and how you you manage to find something that is satisfying in terms of drawing a line, you know, between um, between your work and, and your kind of personal space, you know, both your mental space and your kind of physical space, you know, and when you travel for work so much and and all of that, right? And um, and I I wonder always how people feel about is your own well-being and your own um, kind of self-care and mental health care is that your own responsibility do you feel like you're in charge of that like it's up to you to make it work and to make it healthy and safe or are you confident that the kind of organizational setting in which you operate gives you you know the kind of tools and 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 the you know boundaries to actually protect yourself you know mm -hmm. from being overworked from you know burning out and, and, and all these kind of uh, things you know I mean you, you pose some really good questions there I think that I think it's a shared responsibility. I don't, I think that being mindful, practicing, you know, um, stress reduction techniques through breathing and other, the other things, um, are fantastic. But when there are so many external pressures on your life through your job, um, there's only, there's limitations on how much control you have over your well-being. I think, um, organizations need to take more responsibility when it comes to their employees' well-being. And I think that in our sector, like you said already, you know, it is a, a sector built on so many values. And, you know, we do this because we are passionate about it and we care about it, not necessarily because it pays well or, you know, um, and I think it puts us in a position that we don't fight for our own Um, well-being. I think that a lot of us don't. And I think that we feel very guilty for asking for, for help, for support, for uh, time to be able to actually achieve all the work that we have to do. Yeah, for setting boundaries in general and saying no, yeah. you know, no to this extra project, not, no to this call at 5 a.m. because of the time difference. A hundred percent. And I think that's why I really strongly feel that like it's a, it's become a very pervasive like sector-wide problem. I've worked at several organizations and I, I don't think, I think we have a long way to go when it comes to well-being. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think workloads is the main problem. Yeah. I think Uh, there's just too much work for, for one person. It's, it's just not possible at the end of the day to achieve even really good quality. Um, I mean, we struggle just to achieve our, our deadlines as we currently have them, not to mention, you know, having high quality projects and, and reports to identify, to, to present those projects. So I think that it's, um, I think it's a huge problem. And actually, Um, as cynical as it might sound when I do meet with young people who, you know, they ask for coffee and they want to learn about the mm -hmm. sector, they're in school, they're studying. So this it is, is what this podcast is about, yeah. right? It's like you having coffee with yeah. millions of young people, <laughs> millions of being maybe a little bit optimistic, but you know, these are definitely conversations we have all the time. But so. it's something I warn them. Yeah. I warn them about because I think that they should go in it with their, with their eyes open, that this is the current state. I'm not saying that it's right. I'm not saying that it's fair. Um, I think that there should be some real changes that happen in our sector. But if things don't change, they should know that this is what it looks like. You know, the work-life balance, it isn't something that I've been able to achieve. Um, you say, where do you, you know, have, how do you draw that line? I don't. I, I don't, honestly. It, it pervades into every area of my life. So I think that having... Uh, the work-life balance in the nonprofit sector. I mean, if someone else has been able to achieve it, I'd love to listen to that <laughs> podcast, but I have not been able to. Um, it's been a constant struggle. So in other, like, you know, ways that I, things that are helpful for me personally, I mean, everyone has to find those things. For me, my home is very much a, 
a place of my sanctuary. Mm. You know, I have my space exactly as I want it. And it's my kind of, you know, retreat, I suppose, away from work sometimes. But then I work a lot from home too, so... Uh, not always. But then also I have a dog. So my dog is a huge stress relief for me. Um, like he makes my life better in every single way. Um, and I guess it helps with the working hours as well, right? Because you have does. to get home and, and kind yeah. of, you know, walk the dog. And, yeah. yeah. I think being accountable to, mm. yeah, something else outside of work is really important. Um, so yes, definitely. doesn't mean I'm not working late that night, but <laughs> I do have to leave the office at, yeah. a, at a reasonable time to, to go home to my dog. Um, I think that that's, you know, really important for me. Other things that I do that do help, I, I exercise. Um, I like to go to the gym. I, I paint. I'm also an artist, so I, I do paint sometimes. I really have to struggle to carve out time for the things that I love. And, you know, I think burnout is really, really real because even if I, you know, have the time, I've carved out this one hour where I'm going to do something, you know, when you have given all of yourself, every single bit of yourself to the job 12 hours a day, sometimes you don't, you don't want to do anything with that hour, you know, like you just want to go to bed, you know, it's, I think the burnout is really, really real. And I think it's had a real impact on my personal life. I think that you do become a bit, um, isolated, you know, and that's why I also think it's very important to have friends in the sector. A lot of friends in the private sector um, or who work for government, their advice is very different. <laughs> it's leave or why would you put up with that? Or, you know, yeah. go get a job that makes you more money. So I think having friends in the, in the, in the nonprofit sector is really, really important who can relate and understand and kind of just uh, bond with you over some of the struggles of, of the work-life balance issue. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean, from all I hear of what you're saying, you know, it does sound like it is on your shoulders, right? I mean, there is, it's really your own responsibility. And I say you, but I mean, it's our own yeah. individual responsibility, you know, and I, I think we've both worked for, between the two of us, we probably have worked with literally every single big uh, international yeah. NGOs yeah. in the world. You know, I think we've covered them all. And some of the same. And some <laughs> of the same, you know, like literally across the world, you know, in both kind of regional hubs and, and you know, international yeah. hubs or international secretariats and, and um, you know, national offices and kind of really local programs. And um, it's the same everywhere. So this idea of like, why don't you just change job? I mean, fine, but you will have to change life if you really wanted yeah. to get out of that system because it works the same everywhere. Yeah. And I think to some extent, you know, it even expands beyond the NGO sector to the international organization sectors as well. You know, I don't think that the work-life balance at the UN is any better, right. you know, or at any kind of international organization of the sort, you know. So um, there is definitely an issue there, which, you know, we're not going to solve today, but definitely I think talking <laughs> about it and just, you know, being kind of reluctant. I don't know. I think like a lot of organizations are quite, or a lot of individuals are reluctant to admit that they struggle, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's not so easy to say, you know, like I'm getting tired, you know, like it's hard to kind of keep up with this workload or I don't want to go on that work trip again, you know, because I've spent half of the month, you know, away. And like, yeah. so um, I think it's okay to be vocal about, you know, the limitations and the hardships sometimes that come with our, uh, with our work lifestyle. And I, I want to add to this conversation too, that I think that we, we need to stop the discussion around ratios. Mm. I feel like we've had Uh, some progress. We've had some um, change, I think, in our sector around talking about, you know, overhead versus like implementation ratio of of the dollars that we that we bring in. 
But I think it's very, very damaging and it leads to these unrealistic workloads on individuals because we have to be careful about our ratios. I think like going back to what I said, if we want to have very good development, a lot of that does need to be invested into the kind of work that we do and the people who are managing that work. So, I mean... And I'm not talking about an unrealistic ratio. I'm not talking about, you know, half of our money should be spent on our staff. That's not what I mean. But I think that, you know, investing in good development means investing in the people who do development. And I think um, who do good development. And that would lead to more varied expertise, more diverse expertise, um, and more time to, to for you know focused on our deliverables and focused on quality of implementation and learning. I think the sector has a long way to go when it comes to that. No, absolutely. And I, I actually, you know, I've been thinking more and more that we're just trying to do too much. You know, this sector is just trying to sort out everything under the sun, and it's very common to find organizations and projects, you know, that are targeting literally five different issues that have very little connections, you know, and now there is this kind of requirements that we need to be um, aware of the kind of gender equality side of the project, you know, and the kind of climate environmental impact of it. And so, you know, there is this kind of added layers and layers of complexities to, yeah. to the projects where, you know, before you were trying to just build a school, and I'm not saying that we should go back <laughs> to the old days of, you know, kind of pure development work where you just kind of send, you know, books to whatever countries. But um, I think it's trying to do way too much, you know, and it's just over-complexifying issues that are already really complex and multifaceted and, mm-hmm. and, and definitely um, have a lot of different components and a lot of different actors involved in it. But sometimes having a project that is not trying to just sort out maternal health care for the whole country, for everyone, yeah. would actually be... Uh, be helpful and kind of, you know, we are sometimes counterproductive. By trying to do too much, we actually end up doing very superficial work. Whereas if we were to target this one village, you know, or this one region and just kind of do it well, you know, and do it for a long time and then replicate, you know, what we've learned at that kind of smaller scale, you know, to other places, then, which to some extent I think is, you know, was at least at some point, you know, the original idea, but there is such an intense competition for funding, you know, that, that this competition is leading organizations to kind of oversell, you know, and overpromise the the work that they're going to be doing, you know, and the impact that they're going to have, yeah. you know, and as a result, the the risk of under-delivering just becomes a reality, right? So um, I think that there should be maybe this, you know, race to the bottom, um, you know, should stop with organizations just admitting that their expertise is niche and it's this, you know, yeah. and this is what they do and what they do well, and that's all they're going to be doing, you know, yeah. they're not going to be the covering, you know, like satellite issues uh, to, to, to the project. So um, I don't know if you have uh, anything you, you want to add. Um, I think I, I like to end this conversation by um, asking you, you know, if you weren't working in the human rights sector or in the development sector, you know, what would you be doing? I mean, and, and the kind of underlying question to this is, um, you know, those values that, that you have and that we have and that we take in, into our job, they don't stop at the job, right? I mean, when you retire or, you know, when you were a student, you had this already, you know, so is there another way to just kind of carry those values with you and make them, you know, reality or at least a roadmap, you know, of your daily life, you know, without turning them into a job, you know, is that, is that a thing or can you have a job in the private sector and still be very mindful of the kind of gender equality, you know, and, and making sure you, um, yeah, you're mindful and kind of progressing this agenda, you know, I, I think that's, that's also, that's also 
feasible, right? So if you were not in the non-profit sector, then what what would be your life like? <laughs> It's funny because I think anything, any job I can see myself in always has some connection to like social justice, justice yeah. or human rights. I It's hard to imagine myself in anything else. I don't think I would feel as passionate about anything else. But of course, I mean, sometimes I, I fantasize about, you know, working part-time job <laughs> at a bookstore somewhere quiet <laughs> where I don't have to use my brain so much <laughs> where I'm not on late night calls you know but I think that you know I, I don't know how long that would really last realistically I, I definitely think that the values that you carry in your job move forward with you in your life I, I don't think that I am defined by my job but I think that I do my job because of who I am Um, and I think that carries into every aspect of my life. I think, you know, re local politics, you know, that that's where you can have an impact too. You know, it doesn't have to be a job. You can, you know, campaign for a candidate in your, in your yeah, riding. Volunteer for a local yeah. project. Yeah. Or, yeah. I used to do a lot of, um, I mean, I, I, I don't really have time now, but I, earlier in, in my career, I did used to do a lot, some volunteering on the weekends. Mm -hmm. Um, every now and again, just doing kind of like, uh, working in a soup kitchen I think it, it helped me feel more grounded to my community as well. Um, I work in international development. And so I find sometimes, you know, I want to feel like I'm connected to my own mm -hmm. community and I'm giving back. And of course, you know, we can talk endlessly about what's the sustainability of, of a soup kitchen, but that's not really the point. I think sometimes it's just about like giving back in your local area. Um, that's all t connected to my background in human rights and and. You, you carry that into every area of your life. So I think wherever I would work, I'm sure I'd be uh, the person pushing the boundaries and asking why our board isn't more diverse or, <laughs> you know. Question, yeah. That. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, think there's a, I think that when you work in human rights, there's a little part of us that's all a little bit of a rebel, um, a little bit of a, you know, defiant person who wants to question and, and push back a little bit so I think we're all a little like that <laughs> absolutely I love that I think we're going to have to stop on this one because nothing is going to top this sentence uh, thank you so much for, for doing this with me for coming to visit me in New York that's been really nice to have you and uh, and I hope we continue to have these conversations you know I think we have them all the time you know there is nothing special in the conversation we just had you know yeah. we have this all the time <laughs> but I just feel like you know we need to share them and I I think, you know, that the 22-year-old me who set up on this journey to get this master's in human rights would have loved to hear the reality of, you know, people's experience when, you know, we're not too old yet, so we remember what we signed up for and we remember, you know, what we, what we were hoping to get. So um, anyway, thank you so much. And uh, let's do another episode in 10 years again to see where we are at. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. Thank you. Thank you.